Ah, yes. Peachtree City has unanimously voted down the idiotic resolution to. Uh, I mean, why did this even come up? Can, can I can I ask this question? Uh, it's. I wonder if there if there was public if there was no public outrage, would this have passed? Why did the city council consider it anyway? I mean, you got to ask that. Somebody prepared the resolution for the council to consider. Somebody thought it was a good idea for taxpayer money to be used to sue citizens. Somebody thought that was a good idea. The The council and the mayor had killed it, but they considered it. It should have never even gotten that far. Uh, so good for them for doing the right thing. But you do have to wonder if there was not so much vocal public opposition and media coverage of it, would it have passed? Uh, it should have never been considered in the first place. But good for them. Um, now, I do want to spend a few minutes. Uh, it, it, yesterday, I walked everyone through the Mueller report. And I did it very intentionally. And thank, by the way, thank you very, very much uh, for the kind feedback from so many of you. And if you've got any questions today, I'm happy to take them. The phone lines are open, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Um, but I wanted to walk you through it so you could hear the Mueller report for yourself, hear Bob Mueller in his own written words, and just give you the context of it so you understood. What I feared would happen is what happened, and I think it's what we all expected to happen. Both sides have doubled down on their talking points. The president's team says the Mueller report exonerates him. It doesn't do that on the obstruction charge. The Democrats say he committed impeachable offenses. It doesn't say that either. The media says it's confirmation that they got all their stories right. It doesn't do that. I mean, if anything, I think the media it really is pushing a coordinated talking point, patting themselves on the back of, oh, we've covered this so good. BuzzFeed today is having to walk back its sensational story about Michael Cohen and Donald Trump. If you will recall, for perspective, uh, in fact, this was, I was on, I remember this distinctly because that story broke. I had flown out to Los Angeles to be on the Bill Maher show on HBO back in January when this story came out and I couldn't get here. Uh, the big farmer really wanted to get me back on the radio and I couldn't cause had to be out there for that. And then the Bill Maher team wanted to talk about it on TV. But as the story played out throughout the day, Buzzfeed kept having to walk portions of it back. And then the Mueller team released an extraordinary statement. They'd only released two of them, both of them to tell the media the media had gotten stories wrong. The Mueller report, they released an extraordinary story saying no part of the Buzzfeed story was true. Buzzfeed claiming uh, that its sources said that Donald Trump instructed Michael Cohen to lie to Congress. A huge sensational claim all over the media. And BuzzFeed went on TV even after the Mueller investigators said the story wasn't true. And BuzzFeed went on TV, Ben, ben what's his name, Ben Smith from BuzzFeed said, yes, it is true. And if, if Mueller doesn't think it's true, he needs to tell us exactly what part of it isn't true. And the Mueller team replied, none of it. None of it is true. And the BuzzFeed folks doubled down on it. Well, now they're having to come out today and say, well, you know, one of our guys said he saw the documents. Others of us didn't see the documents. But apparently someone was in an interview and wrote something down and and heard Cohen say that the president told him to lie. And apparently he mischaracterized or misheard and wrote it down in his notes. And that's what we reported. 
So you had one, a single source accusation. This is part of the problem with the media. You have a single source telling you something super sensational. You know, we're going to spend two hours tonight talking about uh, Good Friday. We're, it is widely accepted by secular, atheist, and religious scholars that a, there was a man named Jesus from an area of, of the Middle East called Nazareth in what is now Israel, and that he was crucified, nailed to a cross by Romans. That is really not in dispute by any historian. What is in dispute is, is on the third day, whether or not he rose again from the dead. There are more people with firsthand accounts written within 50 years of Jesus dying that he rose again from the dead than there were to say that Donald Trump told Michael Cohen to lie. There was one person in an interview who wrote it down and clearly misheard it. If And you know what, what the left tells us, secularists tell Christians— that if you're going to make an extraordinary claim, you need extraordinary proof. If you're going to make the extraordinary claim that Donald Trump instructed Michael Cohen to lie, you need extraordinary proof. And the media didn't run with that extraordinary proof. There's another story as well um, that the media has yet to own up to. McClatchy ran a story that Michael Cohen went to Prague. And in this, I, I heard Hannity talking about this briefly. That Michael Cohen went to Prague. And it met with Russians there. And McClatchy doubled down on the story. And then they tripled down on the story. And the story's not true at all. It's not true. Uh, they made it up. Or somebody made it up and fed it to him. I shouldn't say McClatchy made it up. Someone fed it to McClatchy. And they doubled down on it. And that's really problematic for the press to come out today waving their flags and cheering themselves and patting themselves on the back and saying, woohoo, we got it all right. They didn't. They got a lot of it right, but the stories they most heavily promoted, they got wrong, and that's a problem. I'll tell you another problem as well, and this is one conservatives have to deal with. And I mean that seriously, and it involves people I know and like, but the Seth Rich situation. We know from the Mueller report, well, we, we knew before the Mueller report, Seth Rich was not a, a leaker in the DNC. Julian Assange of WikiLeaks implicated Seth Rich, suggesting that he was the leaker, and he leaked the information to WikiLeaks, and he was killed because of it. And that's simply not true. It was a tragedy. It was unrelated to anything. And there were conservatives, conservatives on TV and talk radio and in the conservative movement who believed, wanted to believe the conspiracy. Not only did they want to believe the conspiracy, they wanted to believe Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, it is very clear, is an operation affiliated with or controlled by the Russian government. And those of us who were willing to keep some level of objectivity were saying, you know, this is a problem. If you noticed, uh, WikiLeaks always seemed to leak information about Russia's foes, never really anything about Russia itself. And they stirred the pot with this issue. And it's unfortunate. And Seth Rich's family had to relive the tragedy again. And there are now lawsuits, or there were, maybe they've been settled. But how many conservatives, we had people call this program 
because they heard others in the conservative media say Seth Rich was the one. He was the leaker in the Democrats. Hillary Clinton killed him. It's not true. We know it's not true now. We have intelligence. We have grand jury evidence, all of these things. We know it's not true. Will the people who pass that around, will, will they ever account? Will they ever apologize? How many conservatives were misled by lies? I mean, that's one of the awful things here. Today is Good Friday. I have a column out, a nationally syndicated column, nationally syndicated, meaning all over in newspapers in every single state except the Atlanta newspaper. And the column is titled The Truth. The Truth is the Truth of the Resurrection. And we believe that Christians believe that God is truth and that there can be real objective truth and real moral truth because God is truth. And if you are a believer, whether you're a a Muslim or Christian or Jew, you believe in truth. You believe in a God who controls all things, who provides truth and Christians should be deeply, deeply, deeply disturbed that so many of their leaders within their movement, within their political party, lied. Lied to them, lied to others. Some lied under oath and have gone off to jail, but lied. You may not like the Democrats. You may think they're the enemy, not just opponents. You may think they're the enemy. I don't think they're opponents. Some of you think they're the enemy. But you can't behave like the enemy because then you become them. You shouldn't behave like your opponents because you become them. You should defend the truth and you should be worried when those you support are so willing to embrace lies to advance their cause because at some point they may just start lying to you. Let's go to the phones, 404-872-0750-1800, WSB Talk. Daniel in Lawrenceville, you're up first. Welcome. Hey, Eric. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So I finally got into volume two of the Mueller report last night. and Here's where nothing concerns me, Eric, in this report, especially from any sort of criminal perspective. Other than the fact that, and this concerns me potentially for independent voters and voters in 2020, is how Trump interacted with his officials and the people that worked for him, um, at least within the first year or two of his presidency. And if you look at it, it's kind of concerning to me with with what he asked Katie McFarlane, if that's true with what the report says, of his writing report even after she resigned, writing a memo stating that she didn't do something in which she felt awkward to do because she couldn't say that honestly. How he put Lewandowski in the Oval Office saying, I want you to send this message to Jeff Sessions, but Lewandowski didn't feel comfortable doing it and then asked somebody else to do it, and then it never got done. My concern is if you actually read this report and you kind of look at kind of that stuff, because as a conservative and as a Trump voter, I'm trying to be objective with the report. And that kind of concerns me for, like, if they, if Democrats or anyone wants to start identifying that, the media has played this out several times with how Trump might seem and his administration seem 
maybe immature when it comes to the political world. That's a this is a big insight to me, and they can attack. I think the Republicans and the Trump administration in 2020 if they want to use yeah. this as ammo. Yeah, look, I don't agree. I, I don't disagree with you on that, and I think the the as as the Mueller report says, the president tried to obstruct his his investigation. Uh, and was unsuccessful in large part because of those around him ignoring his request. And, and that is problematic. And it's going, I think independent voters could have issue with the president's behavior outlined in the report. And listen, partisans may still say that the report's not true, but you got all these people under oath, including KT McFarland, Reince Priebus, and others under oath talking to the special prosecutor. That's problematic. Welcome back. Eric Erickson here. The phone number 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Heavier rain now, up 400, crossing over uh, from Sandy Springs all the way north of Cumming. um, And a little more on the way there. It's clearing out now on 575. A little light showers there at the 575-75 split. And up 75 all the way to uh, Chattanooga, there is light rain. Uh, but we're things are starting to calm down for now for the evening. Let's go back to the phones. Uh, Joe in Canton, welcome. Hey, Eric, how are you today? Good, how are you? Wonderful. Um, let's uh, travel back all the way to Barack Obama telling candidate Trump that there was no way the Russians could influence our election, that there was no way that he should be focusing on something like that because it was such an outlandish thought. And then we go to the fact that an unsubstantiated dossier was used to, I guess, get the FISA warrants, uh, was to promote it, and they went back using that same document to uh, begin the illegitimate portion of the investigation on bogus data. Um, So if then the President of the United States, who has jurisdiction over the Justice Department and constitutionally has the wherewithal to fire FBI directors, Justice Department people, uh, per the Constitution, how then is it obstruction of justice when he is unjustly being uh, spied upon and talked about through the FBI and the Justice Department? Well, see, this is part of the problem and one of the reasons that the attorney general decided that they really this isn't prosecutable because, one, the president had the right to fire uh, James Comey and it's, it's a legal right of the president. And the other issue is if there was no underlying crime, the collusion. Um, There is some, this is where it gets a little complicated. There is well-established precedent within uh, the federal government and federal criminal code that someone can be prosecuted for obstruction of justice for impeding an investigation when it turns out there was no underlying crime. That the investigation to determine whether or not there was a crime uh, is its own thing. And if you obstruct it, you can be charged with a crime. However, that being said, uh, when there are good, good precedents also that show if the underlying acts taken were within the legal power of the person taking them, that there may not be 
uh, a charge of obstruction of justice. So, in other words, you can obstruct justice even though there's no underlying crime because you are obstructing in an illegal investigation and that is its own thing. But if the way you are obstructing that legal investigation is just using your legal powers that you have, uh, then there is some hint in, in federal court precedent that you may not actually be guilty if, if you did if you did things you didn't have the power to do to obstruct the investigation, you could be charged. But it's pretty clear the president firing James Comey, uh, even wanting the attorney general to unrecuse himself, so to speak, weren't necessarily illegal acts. And this all complicates things for a prosecution. You know, on top of that uh, is intent. And you heard uh, William Barr yesterday talk about the president was making emotional claims or it was acting out out of emotion, not necessarily with a intent to obstruct. And that is also relevant to the underlying um, underlying crime. There is an intent provision in the obstruction code. And if the president was just acting out of emotion, he didn't necessarily have legal intent under the letter of the law. Okay. Now we can go back to the phones to Vince calling from Atlanta. Welcome Vince. Vince, you there? Well, yes, I am. All righty. How are you? Yeah. So, Eric, just uh, quickly on that one thing, you know, they uh, they were talking about the the president wanted to obstruct justice, but his uh, staff wouldn't let him. Um, If I remember correctly, you know, presidents have always, you know, they're busy guys. They have a lot to do and they don't necessarily know exactly what is and within is and isn't within the lines of, of, you know, what's legal, so to speak. And that's why they have a staff, and those staffs are, you know, specifically there to, to make sure that the president, you know, does certain things and and doesn't do other things. And so I, I I'm just a little lost as to understanding why, um, um, well, you know, why this might be a, an issue in that, you know, uh, the the staff is there to advise the president and say, hey, buddy, you know, we can't do this right. because it's, you know, it's illegal or. or yeah, that, that, that's saying? a great it, question. It um, it, like anything. Well, you, you got to keep in mind, first and foremost, that there is a presumption, and, and it, it's actually a presumption I'm opposed to, but it but it's still in place. There is a legal presumption uh, that ignorance of the law is no defense. So even if the president's lawyers did not tell him you're not allowed to do this and the president attempted to do it, uh, even if he didn't know, he could still be charged with a crime. But uh, to the larger point here, And there were things the president might have wanted to do that did not get done. And there's no attempt to obstruct charge. You either obstructed or you did not obstruct. And attempting to instruct is like, well, it just it doesn't exist as a crime. You can't charge the president with attempted obstruction. He either obstructed or he didn't. And he didn't. And he didn't because his staff uh, ignored him. And there are cases where the staff told the president he could not do things. And this is one of the determinative factors for the attorney general and the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, is that it, when the president was told legally we can't do this, the president stopped asking. So once he was made aware of the situation, he stopped, which suggests he did not have the intent to obstruct justice. Brian, in Atlanta, you're going to be next. Welcome. Yeah, I just wanted to say something. The uh, you know, the caller that's reading the report, I'm going to download it and read it myself. But, you know, he said that, uh, you know, early on in the Trump administration, he was stumbling a little bit and whatever and uh, didn't really have a grasp on politics. You know what? 
I don't know about the rest of the Trump supporters, but I voted for him because he is not a politician. And if he stumbled a little bit and uh, was, you know, trying to get his sea legs, I have no problems with that. And I just, you know, uh, I just... Uh, yeah, look, I, I get it. And, and I actually think that uh, a majority of Trump supporters probably take that position, Brian, that he's new. he's not a professional politician. And so he's new to this. And so he was prone to make mistakes and the staff helped him out. I'm, I'm hearing that from a lot of Trump supporters today. And I do think, hey, now I realize I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people who don't like the president screaming about it, saying that's not fair. Uh, but I actually think it's a fair point. Uh, people did vote for him because he was outside of the ordinary. He was a completely different sort of politician. And as a result of being a completely different sort of politician, he behaved differently and, and didn't necessarily know the things that other people knew. But the problem is, in my mind, I have an overarching problem. And that is, it's very clear from the Mueller report, the president and a number of those around the president frequently and recklessly lied. And I do have a problem with all of the lying. Uh, I do. And I just, I don't think, there, there seems to be this growing consensus on the right that we should behave exactly like the other side, we think the other side behaves. And I don't think we should. Our ways are not their ways. Um, I, I don't think we have to engage with the same playbook. And I think if you're, you're convinced the other side are nothing but a bunch of liars, you, you don't have to lie. And I do have a real problem with the amount of lying that has come out of this administration, much of it unnecessary. And I would also say we would have never gotten to this point if the president had restrained himself and not actually fired James Comey. That's just the truth. I keep telling people about the Quip Electric toothbrush, and I'm going to keep telling you about the Quip Electric toothbrush because I like the toothbrush that much. I really am a Quip user. I really did ask them to let me advertise. This is just I'm not saying it because they're paying me, although they are paying me. I'm raining down pennies from heaven, but for a good product. Uh, I have tried, you know, the, the super expensive. You can get electric toothbrushes that are more than 100 bucks. And believe it or not, at one point I did because I was convinced my dentist told me I needed an electric toothbrush. And so I shelled out the money for it. It was awful. I went back to a store brand uh, and I just I, I've wanted something with the sonic vibrations to really help get my teeth clean. And in fact, I found it in the quip uh, browsing through Instagram. I kept seeing the ad for it. It's like, all right, I'm going to give it a try. It's only twenty five dollars. And well, that was three years ago. And now I'm on my second quip because I broke my toothbrush. But nonetheless, I got a new one and it's awesome. Uh, you get it, and every three months they will send you a new brush head for five bucks with a battery, so you keep it going. And you can get the Quip for just $25. If you go to getquip.com slash Erickson, you'll get your first brush head refill pack for free with the Quip electric toothbrush at getquip.com slash Erickson. So again, your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash Erickson. You will like it. Trust me. Now, let's go to the phones. Uh, Charles in Lilburn, you're next. Welcome. Hey, Eric. You know, I have a Sirius XM, and I every once in a while I'll flip over to the progressive channel oh. listen to what they're talking about. I know, I straight to the wrong side of the forest every once in a while. But you know what's funny is that dominant callers are calling in saying, they ran on impeach. We want impeachment. We not want impeachment. And now that the Democrats are backing off of the impeachment thing, 
uh, the Demo- those callers are like, we're going to fire them all, we're going to vote them all out of office and everything else. Sounds similar to what we said about uh, Paul Ryan and everything else. But they're, they ran on impeachment, so they have to push this impeachment thing. And Pelosi knows it. Pelosi yeah. knows she's lost it, and she's lost the party to the Ocasio-Cortezes. And she, if she wants to get it back, she's got to have an impeachment. Oh, yeah. And look, you know, Steny Hoyer came out yesterday and said impeachment would not be advisable. They are ready to burn that man to the ground. Uh, but yeah. and Pelosi's already said it as well. And and so, you know, one of the things you got to understand about progressives is that they have been very bad at talk radio. And they've largely embraced podcasts now uh, because they can curate it more to their audience. Uh, To be on radio, you know, honestly, the number one job that I have on radio is just to keep you company and entertained on your way home and provide you the news. And they're just not entertaining. They're not funny people. They don't have humor. And but they've decided that conservatives have been very effective in talk radio and they're going to try it. And they're going to try to get the president impeached through their poorly listened to talk radio shows and podcasts. I don't think it's going to work. All right, we got to move on. We got to get into the David Ralston story when we come back. Welcome back. It's Eric Erickson here, News 95.5 AM 750 WSB. The phone number is 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. I want to go back to the David Ralston story. It's gotten buried under the Mueller stuff. And as I mentioned in the first hour, I, I'm, I, I kind of want to wait and let the Mueller report marinate because everybody's in their partisan positions right now and yelling at each other. And they're clearly things that happened in the White House that should not have happened and orders the president gave that he shouldn't have given. But I don't think it reaches the level of collusion. And and you've got, um, well, you got some angry partisans now, angry at uh, Cindy Hoyer. It, it is, well, how do I want to say this? I, I, I guess David Ralston should be happy that the story broke yesterday uh, because there was a press conference about what was happening, or a day before yesterday, I guess, uh, what is happening with David Ralston? Uh, Derek Somerville came on the show two days ago. He's a former FBI guy, uh, FBI investigator, and he really cares about this issue. It got him fired up. Uh, he's not alone. David Clark, the state representative who authored the resolution about uh, David Ralston, is also fired up about it. And uh, Sherry Gilligan from up in Forsyth County is uh, very fired up about it. And they're not alone behind the scenes. I know many of you got frustrated because you reached out to me and expressed your frustration. Many of you frustrated that your state legislators did not seem willing to do the right thing. And I don't know that they're going to. I mean, you've got uh, candidates accepting money from David Ralston. That's going to come back, I think, and be an issue eventually. Uh, people who are just like, uh, for different reasons, of course, but you got the Omar lady in Congress, Democrats like Lucy McBath refusing to accept her contributions because she knows it'll hurt them uh, for various reasons. I think it's going to hurt people that David Ralston has given them money. Uh, he's going to be an albatross around the Republicans' neck. Uh, that's just the reality of the situation here. So I, just to review what we know now from Derek Somerville's investigation into David Ralston, he went all over the place, went to multiple counties in North Georgia, he told me. 1,091 continuances David Ralston filed since 2010 in 279 cases and counting. 
Over 700 days of legislative leave were requested since 2010. He was held in contempt of court and threatened with arrest in 2015, according to Derek Somerville. Numerous criminal cases were dropped by prosecutors citing the constitutional right to a speedy trial. And it goes on and on and on. This is not a good look for the Speaker of the House. And here's the thing, the, the speaker's position and the position of, of the Republican leaders in the state house were that they should form a committee of lawyers and, and honorable people to tell the speaker what he should and should do. Y'all, what Derek Somerville said is that in one case, Speaker Ralston just didn't respond to discovery requests, which you just don't do. And the judge ultimately uh, threatened to, to have him thrown in jail, apparently, from what Somerville told us. You don't do that. And you shouldn't need a panel of outside lawyers to tell you what you should and shouldn't do in this stuff. We have legal ethics rules. And the fact that David Ralston wants to punt to a handpicked outside group to tell him what he should do suggests his judgment is in serious doubt. And the legislature should now that it's over, now that the session is over, maybe now the representatives will stand up and do something. And look, I, I know that you guys are frustrated. I have heard from a lot of you. You called, you emailed, uh, you, you got just obfuscation from your representatives. Let me explain the behind the scenes dynamics, the way the rules work in the House of Representatives. And, and I've tried to explain this before. You got about a dozen brave people in the state house uh, led by David Clark, Scott Turner, Sherry Gilligan, and a few others who are willing to stand up um, and, and take a strong stand against David Ralston and what he had done. You had others who wanted to join them, but have been working very, very, very hard at getting pieces of legislation passed. And in the in the last few years, David Ralston has blocked a number of good pieces of conservative legislation. And so these members of the state house knew that they could take advantage of this opportunity to get some really good reforms passed out of the state legislature. I mean, take for example what happened with Scott Turner. Scott Turner had a, a piece of legislation. And it was backed by the Speaker of the House. The Speaker of the House loved the legislation. Scott Turner passing legislation that says that the state cannot force you to give up your professional licenses if you are behind on student loans. And this is a, a na nationwide thing. It's a real nationwide problem where individuals are in debt because of their student loans. They're not making enough money as teachers to pay their student loans. And so they get in arrearage with their student loans and the state then takes their teacher's license so they can't actually work in their profession to make the money to pay their loans. It's a real problem. And so Scott Turner wanted legislation passed. The speaker blessed the legislation. Uh, Scott Turner was actually going to come on my program to talk about it. And, and I wound up saying, you know what? You, you're going to get yourself in trouble if you come on my program because the speaker hates my guts. Uh, so he didn't come on any pushed the legislation. Well, Scott Turner, man of principle, decided to sign on to the David Clark resolution to oust the speaker. His legislation, despite the speaker supporting the legislation, the speaker killed the legislation. Thankfully, we have a man in the Senate named Jeff Duncan, and we have another man in the Senate named P.K. Martin, and we have some other good conservatives in the Senate, and they were able to attach Scott Turner's legislation to another piece of legislation and zip it through on the last day and, and get it passed before the speaker realized what was going on uh, and, and saved this good legislation. Legislation the speaker supported and killed to punish Scott Turner for signing the resolution saying the speaker should resign. 
So there were others who had legislation that they desperately wanted to pass, and they needed to get it out of the House, and so they couldn't sign the resolution. But there are a lot of people there who don't support the Speaker and would love to see the Speaker gone. But there is another dynamic we need to talk about so that you understand the lay of the land. Uh, If the Speaker were to leave right now, the new Speaker would be Jan Jones. Jan Jones is the Speaker pro tem of the House of Representatives. And there are several men in the state house who want to be speaker. If David Ralston were to leave right now, Jan uh, Jones, because she's the speaker pro tem, would automatically become the speaker of the house. And these other men who do not care for the speaker and would like to see the speaker go, they have no shot at being speaker. And so for their own self-preservation and own opportunity in the future, They didn't support the resolution because they very much want to be speaker, which really should tell you a lot about them and why they probably should not be speaker. They weren't willing to take a stand on principle in the here and now, uh, claiming that, yeah, you know, this is exactly, by the way, what David Ralston did uh, with uh, Glenn Richardson, a speaker. David Ralston was outraged by the supposed conduct of then Speaker of the House Glenn Richardson. And behind the scenes, it took him forever, finally stood up and said he'd do something and change the way the House worked. And now he's probably more deeply sociopathically corrupt than the last speaker, the way he behaves and is just ruthless with anyone who who opposes him. You know, David Ralston doesn't seem to understand that you can actually uh, do more by being a decent, nice speaker than by being super paranoid and ruthless. Every time he says he's not paranoid, you got to remember behind the scenes the horror stories from people who, who I mean, I've had state legislators call me and say, please, please, please don't don't talk about me on the radio because the speaker is going to come after me. I mean, that's what we're dealing with here. There's a lot of self-preservation, but the legislature's gone home now. They're not there. Maybe now they should stand up. Again, before I go to commercial break, let me read you the data again from Derek Somerville. 1,091 continuances, 279 cases, over 700 days of legislative leave since 2010. That's appalling and unacceptable. And members of our state legislature should stand with David Clark and Scott Turner and Sherry Gilligan and the rest and say it's time for Speaker Ralston to go. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. News 95.5 AM 750 WSB. Uh, We're getting conflicting reports over Herman Cain's situation in the U.S. Senate for the Federal Reserve. I, uh, Herman apparently has told the media he has no intention of withdrawing. The president has not now formally nominated Herman Cain. That, that is one thing we need to note here. The president has not actually formally handed the nomination over to the Senate. And that's very normal. There are some members of the media who are raising questions about this and they must not know how the process works. Typically what happens is the White House suggests they're going to nominate someone and that person goes through the vetting process. And once they are vetted, then the president hands the nomination over to the Senate for Senate consideration. There are four U.S. senators who have said they were four Republican U.S. senators, I should say, who have said they will not support Herman Cain. Uh, that means unless he can persuade them, his nomination has no uh, chance of of going forward. But he's a deeply persuasive individual. And 
uh, we should not count him out. But as of now, there was a media report saying the rumors were he was going to step back. He's now saying, nope, he is not going to step back. He's going to go forward. Um, so keep permitting your prayers. This is going to be, uh, there are a lot of people in Washington who they don't like the fact that Herman ran for president, that he got traction running for president, particularly with the economic plan of 999, and that he was a, a radio show host who, who tended to back the president. There are people in Washington who don't like that, and, and they focus on that, and they don't focus on his resume. They ignore, don't remember, or have forgotten, I mean, just, just totally oblivious to the fact that he was the CEO of a company, that he worked within the Fortune 500, that he was on the Federal Reserve, that he was the president of a Federal Reserve bank. But you listen to these people in Washington and they say, oh, no, no, it's it's presidential. It's just, this is the way Washington works. So keep hermiting your prayers, if you will. Uh, he's, he's totally qualified for the job. And there is clearly a media effort uh, to derail his nomination from people in Washington who don't want him there uh, and who are completely ignorant of or willfully, in most cases, ignorant of his qualifications. In other news in the state that we need to pay attention to, Planned Parenthood and some of the outside groups are a little bit uh, troubled that the fetal heartbeat legislation may be upheld by federal judges. So here's something you got to understand. The way Democrats typically work is they go on and they line up cases and, so that they can file them immediately and work with people in federal courthouses to navigate them to favorable judges. Um, so for example, uh, Nina Totenberg, you know, from NPR, the, the, the NPR reporter who hates conservatives on the Supreme court, uh, her sister is a federal judge in North Georgia and guess who the Democrats were able to get to hear all of their claims against Brian Kemp in the conduct of the election. And she wound up not being as helpful for him as, as they thought. But, uh, you know, part of that is because Barack Obama was able to fill up the federal bench. Well, now Donald Trump is filling up the federal bench and he's got a lot of conservatives on the federal bench now in Georgia. And so Democrats are now afraid that the fetal heartbeat legislation may wind up with a Trump appointee. And if it winds up with a Trump appointee, they're afraid that the Trump appointee could let the legislation go into effect or at least um, not issue an injunction uh, waiting to be heard. They want an immediate injunction. They want an immediate hold on the case. And it's looking more and more like if this winds up with a federal judge who's a Republican, they may not be able to do that. And now in Georgia, because so many of Donald Trump's appointees have gotten confirmed, the odds are that if they file a federal lawsuit, it's going to go to a Republican judge, not a Democratic judge. Hmm. Isn't it kind of a shame, though, that we know how the state of play is going to be in federal court based not on the law, but based on the partisanship of the judges? That's really deeply problematic. Also very problematic that Democrats are willing to issue nationwide injunctions for laws and Democrats are willing to game the system to try to stop the president's agenda uh, using aggressive liberal activist judges. That is a problem. I'm back. Okay, remember, uh, top of the hour, I'm sticking with you, and we're going to have the Good Friday show. So we will be ditching politics at the top of the hour. For those of you on your way to church, uh, I'll be on 6 to 8, so you turn on the show after after you get out of church this evening. I was not able to get to—I always like to go to Good Friday service, and I couldn't today. Uh, I had folks at our house doing some work, and I couldn't leave. Um, so Joe Biden is going to run for president. 
Oh, I guess I should give you the phone number, uh, 404-872-0750-1800-WSB-TALK. Joe Biden going to run for president. He's getting in. Uh, the Atlantic is reporting Joe Biden intends to announce on Wednesday via a video he shot in his hometown. He gets deeply personal and he's going to make a play for white voters who voted for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump and his... Uh, his pitch to them essentially is going to be that Donald Trump let you down, didn't do what he claimed, uh, but Joe Biden gets you and is one of you, and Donald Trump never really was. That That's essentially going to be his claim. Behind the scenes, you, you had Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic governor of Virginia, the former Clinton handler. He very much wanted to run for president, but Terry McAuliffe became increasingly mindful of the fact that if he did, the field would get too crowded and it could potentially hurt Joe Biden's fundraising because many of them share the same fundraising base of friends. And people were expressing to uh, Terry McAuliffe that they would much prefer if Joe Biden got in. So McAuliffe said on the sidelines there, I, I read you the other day, a report out of Democrats have been meeting in private, including Pete Buttigieg, along with Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Terry McAuliffe, and a number of others deeply fearful of Bernie Sanders rise. And Bernie Sanders, I got to say right now, appears to be the guy to beat. Uh, Bernie is raising more money. He's raised more than anyone else. He's now polling higher than Joe Biden. This is Bernie Sanders' race to lose. And the Democrats are becoming more and more fearful of a crowded field. They believe they're not going to be able to control the field. They believe they're not going to be able to help shape the nomination process. And they are deeply afraid they're going to get to a brokered convention. Now, can I just say something? For the last decade, I have been in politics since 1993, actively, when I was a freshman in college at Mercer University and uh, started the College Republicans there and went on to become the, the chairman of the uh, state uh, College Republicans. And every single time there has, with the exception of possibly 2000, the media has loved to talk about brokered conventions. I don't necessarily think there's going to be a brokered convention. A brokered convention is where you get to the Democratic National Convention and there's no clear nominee. So you, you got to wheel and deal to get a nominee. Now, on the to be fair, on the uh, Democratic side, it is more likely than the Republican side. And the reason it's more likely on the Democratic side is because there are way more races with a plurality um, or proportional voting, I should say. So... In the Republican side, most of the races are winner-take-all. So you you win Georgia, for example, you get uh, the majority of those votes. Now, the Republicans are actually staggered. It's like before March 1st, most of them are proportional. After March 1st, it's winner-take-all. Uh, caucuses vary. The Democratic side is much more proportional all the way through until about May. Uh, and those races really don't matter because by then people build up margins. But they're so the media loves to talk about brokered conventions. The Democrats have made it easy. They got rid of superdelegates. They didn't think they could um, have intellectual honesty on the issue of the Electoral College if they had superdelegates. They also were fearful of alienating their base. Uh, th there is some thought among Democrats that the superdelegates helped tip 2016 to Hillary away from Bernie and some of the Bernie bros either sat home or went for Trump uh, out of protest. They don't want to do that. So uh, both parties, every time they change their rules to stop something from happening, that thing they want to stop winds up happening more often than not. Uh, and they're probably going to get Bernie Sanders because of it. But the only person, widespread consensus, the only person that could stop Bernie Sanders is Joe Biden. The Democrats, though, y'all, the Democrats are deeply, 
deeply distraught about Bernie Sanders. Uh, and, and you know the thing that makes them the maddest? It's that Bernie Sanders isn't even a Democrat. He's a Democratic Socialist independent in the Senate from Vermont. Uh, he, he's never worked with the Democratic Party. Uh, he, he has aligned in voting with the Democratic Party more often than not, but he's not a Democrat. And it really says something about the Democratic Party that they're being hijacked by a Democratic Socialist who refuses to call himself a Democrat except when he's running for president. But that's the party they wanted. Um, what we're starting to see play out in the Democratic primary process is the identity politics that they've dragged into the culture war. And you're having people, for example, Pete Buttigieg, even though he's gay, he's too white and too privileged and didn't do enough to help black people in, in South, South Bend, Indiana. Um, the, you've got the Democrats who think that the Democratic Party is too white and too old and too male. They want a Kamala Harris or an Elizabeth Warren. You, it just They're breaking apart. I really do think there actually is room in this country at this point for a third party, but it would be socially conservative and fiscally liberal. And you would steal people from both parties, but no one's advancing that right now. And I just, I got to think if the Democrats go off in crazy land, you're going to have a lot of independents who either stay home or vote for Donald Trump, just despite the Democrats and their drift into insanity. Well, I'm done with all that now. Uh, welcome back. It's Eric Erickson. Uh, you know what I mean by that? The Democratic primary, the Mueller report, everything else. Uh, next hour is Good Friday. I have done this every year since 2011 when I started at WSB. Uh, I hope to one day have a more expansive show and do something like this nationwide. I, I really do. And you guys have been a real blessing to me in, in support and prayers and sending song recommendations. Got a lot of stuff from a lot of churches in Georgia and want to get into that when we come back. Uh, for those of you who are leaving, let me just tell you this. Uh, this weekend is inarguably the most important event in human history. And you don't have to believe me. There are repeated surveys of historians to name the important events. And the events of Good Friday always stack in the top five and usually uh, number one, even among atheist historians. Because while there are a lot of people who may not believe that Jesus is the Son of God or that he rose from the dead, it's virtually every credible historian on the planet accepts that there was a guy named Jesus. We actually have more historic evidence uh, contemporaneous with his life that Jesus was real than the Emperor Nero, for example. Most of the contemporary, most of the accounts of Jesus occurred within 50 years of his death. Most of the accounts of Nero weren't until about 150 years after he, he died. So there's really no historic dispute there. And because of that, I, I always, I, I've said since I started here, that on Good Friday, if I'm going to work, and I am, I want to spend time contemplating uh, the ramifications of how that event 1,980-some-odd years ago, purportedly. Um, I, I say purportedly because it, it, roughly 2,000 years ago. We're not sure exactly. Was it 30 AD, 33 AD? We don't really know. But how does that impact us now? As a society, as a culture, as Western civilization, even as Eastern civilization, did you know that in China by 2030, they're expecting uh, over 240 million people to be Christians? And what's so staggering is only about 30% go to state-approved churches. 
And the Chinese are ruthlessly trying to exterminate the Christians. They're bulldozing churches, arresting preachers, uh, shutting down home churches, and yet the numbers continue to grow. It's very, very impressive how Christianity is the one religion on the planet that's not anchored to a geographic location. Judaism is Jerusalem, uh, Islam is Mecca, uh, Buddhism, Hinduism in uh, the, the India area. Uh, in Tibet, um, and Christianity is unmoored and, and moves with the spirit around the world. And we should contemplate all of that. Uh, so we will. When we come back, we'll shift gears. We'll move on from politics for the day, and we'll go into Good Friday. I'm Eric Erickson here on WSB. If you got to check out, you guys have a great Easter, and I'll be back after the news.